The passage of scripture we're going to turn to this morning is, it starts that way. It starts with some people going through the motions. Do you ever feel like that in the midst of your, well, let's think of where we've been talking about in, the, in these last few weeks. We have been talking about greater things that God is going to do through you who believe. Jesus says this, this outrageous statement that those who believe in him are going to do even greater things than he did. And you're thinking, right. That is not my experience. That is not my life. You can read it on the page, but experientially you don't know what Jesus is talking about there. Could that really be true, that Jesus, by the Spirit, and we understand, okay, so the Spirit comes, the Spirit lives in us, the Spirit of the living God, and now salvation is completed so people can believe on him. That's, that's all true. And yet, in your own experience, you're not sure that those greater things could really be part of your experience in life. You say, it's true, maybe, but it's, it's not me. And easily we end up then going through, going through life, realizing, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm sent, God would use me, but I sure feel like I'm going through the motions. I feel like I'm, I'm showing up. I'm going through the motions, and yet I don't really expect that God's going to do anything. I don't really expect that anything's going to happen, that anything is going to be different. The passage we're going to read in Scripture starts that way. I want you to try to imagine as we read. Imagine not, okay, this is the gospel. This is the resurrection passage, and oh boy, this is going to be exciting. I want you to read into it as we move into it what it must have been like on that morning for people who are feeling hopeless, people who are not expecting a resurrection, people who are, were, were, thought that God was going to do something and yet apparently not, and they're disappointed, and they don't know where they should go next. Uh, a couple of ladies that are on their way to a tomb, they're, they're going to show up, but they don't really want to be there, and they don't really expect God to show up. And then as we read the story, I want you to look at what was it that really made the difference for them? Because those people are a lot like us. They're just real people. And what made the difference for them, I will suggest, is what will make the difference for us. Okay? Let's read that story in that light. I, I, I want us to read Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. I'll, I'll start at verse 1. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible that you brought with you, you'll find one in the pew in front of you, and uh, you'll find us on page 722. Mark Chapter 16, from verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body, his dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, which suggests, by the way, when they looked up, suggests that they're looking down. They're not skipping to the tomb on this dark morning. They are dragging to the tomb. Their eyes are downcast. 
They are saddened, but they're going to faithfully follow through with this last act of loving service. Well, they don't expect anything wonderful and glorious to come out of it. When they looked up, they saw the stone. It was very large. had been rolled away, and as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, seemed like a young man, dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Well, they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. But they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, who were mourning and weeping, and when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. This is Luke 24, very condensed. They returned and they reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. They didn't believe them either. Later, Jesus himself appears to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs are going to accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and they told everybody. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied them. Lord, we would ask you to go with us this morning. We would ask you to speak to us from your word this morning. Father, show us yourself. Show us your risen son. Lord, we need, like they, we need an encounter with the risen Savior. And that's what we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you describe them that morning? Fear? Hesitancy? Holding back? You know, the things that we're afraid of, the fears that we have, that which holds us back often comes from what we believe as well as what we don't believe. The fear that we have, the hesitancy, what holds us back, even the expectancy that nothing is going to happen is a matter of faith, it's just wrong faith. We're believing something, and we're not believing something. Fear comes from what you believe, as well as what you don't believe, okay? What do I mean by that? Fear comes from what you believe, as well as what I don't believe. Well, I'm afraid that I won't have enough. I'm afraid that if I give my time or my, or my resources, I won't have enough for me, whether for today or for the future, Faith says that what I have I can use, that God will provide, that my, my days are in his hands. I'm afraid it'll be a waste of time. I believe that it'll be a waste of time, that things won't really change. 
I believe that things won't really change. I'm afraid that what others think of me is more important than what God has said concerning me, than what God will say about me. I'm afraid that if others know that I'm a Christian, I'm afraid if people know that I'm a preacher, I'm out and about and I meet somebody and we get into a conversation, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, you don't have a real job, a real career, you know, where you accomplish something. We believe that if people know I'm a Christian, they'll diss me, they'll mock me, they won't take me seriously. For some reason, I believe that people should respect me, even if they didn't respect Jesus. I believe that they should respect me. I want them to respect me. Fear comes from what you believe. Fear also comes from what you don't believe. I'm believing that people will reject me, but at the same time, I'm not believing that my Lord has said, I will be with you. I'm not believing that my Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is not as real to me as the impressions of others that are right near at hand. I am believing that what I do won't matter, and at the same time, I'm not believing the one who said even greater things will be done by those who believe in me. I'm not believing that. Fear comes out of what I believe and also what I don't believe. I'm believing that I need to keep a low profile. I'll hope that no one notices me. I need to believe that Jesus said go. I I believe that I should keep myself pure from those people when, when I need to believe that Jesus said you're the one to go to those people that they need you, even though they resist you. The disciples hiding in an upper room needed the word that Jesus was risen, whether they received it or not. They needed it. I believe I'm having a a bad day. I need to believe Jesus who said, I am with you on all those days. All those days. You know, we were hiking, uh, about a month ago, my son and I, we climbed Mount Adams. I told you, I admitted to you that I am not a runner any longer, but I am a mountain climber. I'm a mountaineer. We summited the highest peak in southwestern Washington. It's higher than Mount Hood even. Maybe not as hard, but it's higher. We climbed Mount Adams. We, we, we climbed up the first day up to about 9,000 feet, and there we set our camp. Right on the... Right on the um, Right on the western edge there, it was a beautiful moonlit night, and there was a beautiful sunset over Mount St. Helens. And then the next morning, the next morning, we looked out, and it looked like the valley was full of snow. Up to about 4,000, 5,000 feet, it looked like everything was covered in snow. I mean, you guys would have been months digging yourselves out. What was it? It was marine layer. We know all about that around here, right? There's this layer of clouds. And man, when you're down here on the ground and you're looking up, it is a gray, lousy, overcast day. But where we were, at 9,000 feet, we looked out and it was beautiful. And we could see from the top that layer of clouds that you poor dear folks couldn't see through. But we could see that it was temporary. 
we could see that it would pass, that it would burn off. That was just that marine layer. And I've been told that if you get enough altitude, every day is a beautiful, sunny day. The present looks like it does because of where we're looking at it from. The present looks as it does, your situation right now looks as it does because of where you're looking from. What you're believing as well as what you're not believing. I'm afraid, I'm discouraged, I'm in despair because of what I believe as well as what I don't believe. We remember the man who came to the Lord. He says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. When I'm afraid, Lord, when I'm believing, what makes the difference? What made the difference here? It wasn't just information. It wasn't just a news flash that said, hey, he's not here, he's risen. That didn't make the difference for any of those women. It wasn't word coming to the disciples there in that upper room, hey, Jesus is risen. Seems like, as you compare the gospel accounts, some of them believed, but most of them still did not. What made the difference to the women at the tomb? What made the difference to the disciples on the road? What made the difference to the disciples gathered together, hiding, keeping their heads down? What made the difference for each of them was an encounter with the risen Savior. When he came to them, when they met him, that changed everything. And right now you're probably saying, thud. Okay, from here the sermon has just dropped. Because you're saying that's not going to happen. We are not in the first century. We are not in those 40 days between resurrection and ascension. We're not expecting the risen Savior to come walking in the room so that we could see him too. That we, like Thomas, could put our fingers into his hand, into the wounds, and and into his side. We're not going to have that chance. It's okay. He knew that. He said, you have seen and believed, Thomas. You put your finger there. And he wanted him to believe. He said, blessed are those who will not see, but will believe. And yet we are as human. We are as human as Mary by the tomb. We are as human, and we, like those two walking down the road, they had great hopes of what Jesus was going to do. And yet they killed him. They didn't see it. And now they're wandering on back. They're leaving Jerusalem where everything was happening, and they're wandering back to Emmaus, they're they're on their way out to the country, not really sure where they should go next. Where should we go from here? The disciples are cowering in fear in the upper room. They saw what they did to Jesus, and they're expecting it's going to happen to them too. That's where everybody's at. Man, these aren't heroes of the faith, are they? They're like us. It's not heroes of the faith that make the difference. Don't, don't get confused about Hebrews of 11 where there's this great chapter that talks about all these people of great faith. It's not that they have great faith. They have a great God. Jesus said faith of a grain of mustard seed. It's not that you have to have this huge amount of faith. It's simply that you need to believe him. And how will you believe him? How they believed him was when they had themselves an encounter with Jesus. And that's the point at which you say, yeah, but how can we? How can I have that? I'm not there. I'm here. I'm now. How could I have an encounter with Jesus? I want to leave us with three ways. You know, it was actually... Actually, a a point I want to make before we get there. 
just to cement in our minds what it is that the, that the disciples are thinking and how it, it's, it's a lot like what we're thinking. That even if we believe, and if we believe that in the end God is going to finish this thing, still right now, it's not something that we can do. It's not something that we can be involved in. If, if, if he's not doing it now, then we're just going to have to sit down, you know, pull back, withdraw, hedge our bets, and just keep our heads down and try to guard ourselves until God begins to move. That was the disciples in the upper room. I'd I like to demonstrate that for you. There is, a, there is one manuscript, only one manuscript, but it's a very early one, and it's, it's referenced all the way to the second century. It's referenced as known by people who were writing things about 150, 150 A.D. So a couple of generations out of Jesus' death, this, this is, is known. But the manuscript is called, interestingly enough for us, Washingtonianus. You know there's a Greek manuscript of the New Testament named Washingtonianus? You didn't know that. I'll show it to you. Here it is. There's Washingtonianus. That's Washingtonius, Mark chapter 16. And the red box, if you can see the red box there, the red box is an added verse. We'll call it 14a. Now, let me, let me, um, um, let me quell any, any concerns that you have at this point. I'm not suggesting you pencil this into your Bible. Okay? I don't think Mark wrote this. However, it's interesting that it was, it was known among the first and second generations of Christians that whether it was simply imagining what they were thinking, but the tradition, the oral tradition was this is part of the conversation with Jesus. When Jesus comes into the room and in verse 14, he says to them, he appears to the eleven as they were eating and he rebukes them for their lack of faith and their refusal to believe. Well, this is their excuse. This is their answer. They excuse themselves saying, this age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan who does not allow the truth and the power of God to prevail against the unclean things of the Spirit. Therefore, therefore, there's nothing we can do, Lord, unless you're going to change something. Therefore, you bring in your kingdom. Therefore, reveal your righteousness now. That's how they answered Jesus. There's nothing we can do until you bring in your kingdom, God. The, the deck is too stacked against us. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that way? That the culture is against you, the enemy, there's spiritual opposition. That's the way the disciples felt. They looked at what happened and they said, man, everything is against us. Okay? Like I said, they're not so different from us. Okay, then, how then could we, like they, how could we have an encounter with the risen Jesus? I wanted to give you three ways, three very practical ways. Look how Jesus answers them. He answers these two. He talks about the age of lawlessness under Satan. He talks about the prevailing conditions and the opposition against them and the spiritual dimension to it. What did Jesus say to his disciples at his resurrection? All authority is given to me. I'm in charge, and I'm with you. And even here, you wonder about that signs passage, should we all be speaking in tongues? Should we all be handling snakes? Should we all be drinking poison? Now you're afraid to take the Lord's table, aren't you? No, it's not poison. But what he's telling them is even where the age is stacked against you, even when enemies who will try to take you out 
There's going to be times even when, when, when they, they poison you and it doesn't work. There's going to be times when you're snake bit and it doesn't work. And that's recorded in Acts. There's going to be times when the demonic powers are going to rise up against you. And you're going to rebuke them. Men's schemes and even Satan's plans are not going to prevail against the advance of the gospel through these servants. That's what Jesus is saying to them. That's what those signs and wonders are about. Okay, how then will we have that similar confidence? How can we also encounter Jesus? The resurrection is real, but for you and I it needs to be relevant. The resurrection is historical. We know that it happened. But for you and I, the resurrection also needs to be personal. We need to encounter him. I'm going to suggest we, you will encounter him three ways. In his word, in his body, and in worship, in serving. In his yoke, let me put it that way. In the gospels, first of all, I'm going to suggest to you, you and I need to wander around there. You need to, you, it, it's good to study, it's good to understand, it's good to dig in, yet it's also good just to wander around there. If I could tell you something practical this morning, just now and again, just go back and read there. Read it like a story. Read it like you can pick up a novel and take it to the beach and sit down and just read for a couple of hours. Do that with one of the Gospels. Remind yourself of the things that he said. Remind yourself of the things that he did. Remind yourself of how he actually engaged with people in gracious, sensitive, and tender ways. Remind yourself what your Lord is like in the Gospels. You encounter the living Word of God. Jesus, as the Word of God, is, is, is the revelation of God in, human, in humanity to us. He's real. And yet we see the living Word every day in the written Word. I know that just sounds, okay, read your Bible. I know I've been told that before. I tried to do it, but wander around in the Gospel just for the purpose of knowing Jesus there. Not to learn stuff, but just read it as his story about him to know him. Wander around in the Gospels. You'll know him through his word. Hear his promises, it will feed your faith. You will know him, you will encounter him in the body. That happens in worship. I, I referred to a verse earlier that says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the ways that we encounter Christ together in worship is in the midst of the singing one to another. Another one of the ways that we encounter Jesus himself in the body is when we are life on life with one another. If the church is indeed the very body of Christ, if we then indeed are his hands, his feet, if when the Lord himself meets needs and touches lives, he actually does it through the flesh and bones of real people, where you'll experience that is in real life-on-life -life relationship with other believers. If you come and you go and you're a, you're, you're a relatively anonymous face in the crowd you have polite greeting and interaction with a few people and off you go but we don't we don't um, peel back the coverings the safety 
and, and let ourselves into one another's lives a little bit where we can actually touch one another's lives. Why do we mention growth groups again this morning? As we're, as we're restarting for the fall, if we've wandered off here and there in the midst of summer, restarting those growth groups where you can pull together with a smaller group of believers and you can be engaged life on life. And along the way, you will share things with these people that will care about you and pray for you that you don't tell just anybody. You'll open up your lives and hearts to one another. And there you'll experience his mercy and his grace through the members of his body. You will, in the body of Christ, encounter Christ. And that's how you'll do it. We need to be engaged in the lives of one another. We need to give ourselves one of the primary best, I'm convinced, the best places of real care in the midst of the troubles and even the despair of this life is those others who have walked with you in faith, who know you well, they know your strength, they know your weaknesses, and in the midst of a tough time, they'll be there for you. They'll be the one to come and visit. They'll be the one to check in and see how you're doing. They'll be the one to take you out to lunch or to bring dinner to you when you can't prepare it for yourself. That close circle, we need to encounter the Lord in the body of Christ, one of the ways we do that is by growing in relationship together, by that which every joint supplies, building itself up in love. Maybe you wouldn't think of this. In his word, we'll encounter the living word. In his body, we will encounter Christ himself. And also, you will encounter him within his yoke. What do I mean by that? Serving together. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, All you who are weak and heavy laden. Anybody? Anybody? Weak? Heavy laden? Yeah. 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 He says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Or literally, I will rest you. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All you who are weak and weary, take my yoke. Really? I'm weak. I'm weary. I'm heavy laden. What's Jesus' solution? He says, here, take this big chunk of wood, you know, that an oxen wears on its neck when it's pulling something. And he says, I'm on the one side. You get in on the other side. Help me out here. The images of a a a new and young oxen that is teamed up with an experienced and strong one. And initially, that joker isn't helping a bit. He's along. But he learns what it is to be in the yoke and to pull a plow. He learns that from the other. He doesn't learn so much the yoke. He doesn't learn so much the plow. He learns the one that he's yoked with. And what does Jesus say in that verse that is just weird grammar? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And it actually makes sense. When you step into, in the company of others, when you step into giving yourself away for others. What are you doing? You are stepping in experientially into the experience of Jesus. 
That's what he did. He gave himself in tangible and costly ways for others. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others, right? Take my yoke upon you and you're going to You know, where, the place where I've learned of the Lord most deeply and dearly, sometimes painfully, has been in the midst of serving others. Let me give you one example. I don't know that I've told this story before. I may have alluded to it. You, you may be aware that Julie and I, our family, we were, we were missionaries in Africa for a total of about 10 years. At the end of our first three years, just about six months before our furlough, we'd come home and we'd, we'd um, reconnect with our churches and so forth for about a four-month, five-month period. Just before we were due to do that, about six months ahead of time, there were some changes and so forth, and, and basically the field director asked me if I would become the new manager of our transmitter station. So I'd be responsible for all these staff. A lot of them were, 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 were men from Swaziland. It was, it was cross-cultural. I'm this American. I don't know a whole lot, and I'm supposed to lead, and I'm a younger man than most of them, but I'm supposed to be the leader and the manager of this team. Well, there were dynamics that I wasn't even aware of, and... Um, in the midst of that, I stepped on toes that I didn't know I, w- I was stepping on. And at the end of that temporary period, I was just supposed to be the temporary manager just for about five months. But at the end of that, the station director was quite happy with the way things are, were going, with changes that had been implemented. He said, Bob, I want you to stay in that role. When you come back from furlough, I want you to continue in that same role as the operations manager running our transmitter station. Okay didn't realize that was the plan, but all right. I'm flexible. I'll chop and change. That idea didn't go over so, so well with the men that I led, the men that I served. It, it, it happened that while I was away on furlough, that basically a coup developed where a couple of guys that were threatened by me, well, things that I had actually done, signals that I had sent that I didn't realize that I was sending, but they believed that I was not for them, but I was against them. I was intent on laying traps to hold them back and to keep them from being advanced into positions as full technicians along with some of our missionaries. They were convinced of that. I'm, I'm probably giving more detail than I should. But, but short end of the story is I, I arrived back to find out that my whole team had concluded we liked Bob working with us. We do not want Bob as our boss. I knew myself I wasn't perfect. And as I sat and listened to one after another describe situations that had brought them to this, this point, uh, conclusions that they'd come to about me, it was very hurtful because I, know, I knew as much as I was imperfect, and I couldn't say that my motives are 100% pure, but as I understood them, my desire, we had given up much. Some had the impression that we came to Swaziland for a good job. I don't know what you know about missionaries, but they normally take a pay cut when they go to the field. They normally decrease their standard of living when they move from America to Africa. That's normally the way it works, okay? But they didn't have that perspective. They hadn't been to America. From their frame of reference, they had come to some conclusions. And I knew that even though I was not perfect, I knew that I had given up much. I had, I had left an Air Force career halfway through to retirement. And I had done that because we were convinced that the Lord was calling us. And in this particular work, to train up these men to be technicians. That's why we went to that place. That's why we were in Africa. 
I knew that to be true, and yet I had that thrown back in my face. We don't trust him. We don't want him to be our leader. At that time, as silly as it seems, as limited and somewhat immature and and from my perspective, but I saw something then. In that rejection, that very personal rejection, that I didn't know if I could stay on that field. I didn't know if I could stay working among people that had said, we don't want him as our leader. That was personal. I didn't know if I could stay. And yet, in the midst of that, I felt that I did taste something. Now, my motives were nothing like Jesus's. And yet I knew that Bottom line, I was there to serve others rather than advance myself. And yet that had been thrown back in my face. That had been trampled on. And I felt in that I understood a little more how I had so long trampled on Jesus. Had I, how I so long had despised the one who loved me and died for me. I'll short to the end of the story. A couple of months later, it turned out all of this had come because of two guys who were on a track to be technicians, and I said, okay, prove it. I laid out exactly what they would have to do if they were going to be called technicians and paid as technicians, which was an issue, that, that they would demonstrate that they could be toe-to-toe with any of the other technicians. They had good training. I said, I want to see that you can do it. Show me. And this is what that means. And we laid it out right according to their college syllabus, with the kind of things they should be able to do. They thought I laid it out that way because I did not believe they could do it. Because in the, in the South African apartheid system, they themselves did not believe they could do it. They wanted to be promoted, but they didn't believe that they could actually, on their own merit and their own ability, stand toe-to-toe with a white person in the same role. They didn't think they could do that. And so they didn't think I thought they could do that. I wasn't South African. I hadn't grown up in apartheid. I genuinely thought they could. And once I was able to convince them of that, within a couple of months, one of these two guys is walking across, the th- I'll, I'll never forget this, this walk across our transmitter hall floor, and we're talking about an, an assignment, something I want him to work on, uh, a, a new area of responsibility that I want him to take on and, and, and take hold of. And he says to me, you know, you're a good boss. He finally realized, or he'd gotten a glimpse, he'd realized along the way in those few months, short months actually, that I actually was for him believed in him, was not trying to hold him back. So it was a wonderful end to the story. Confidence that was earned along the way, and I realized how I'd come across in some ways. But in the midst of that, in their rejection of me, this is my point, in their rejection of me, I tasted something of my rejection of Christ. And I loved him the more for it. What I didn't see how I could endure at a much smaller scale, he endured on a much grander scale because he loved me. I'm not just saying, hey, I want you to get involved because we got some stuff that needs done. I'm not just saying, I want you to go and be sent by the Spirit because there's people out there that need Jesus. I want you to go and experience the joy of being sent because it's there, even in the face of rejection, it's there that you will encounter him. You'll never meet him, 
in the safety of a pew alone. You won't find him there. You will find him life on life in the body. You will find him as you soak yourself in his word. And you will find him as you join him in his yoke and learn of him in his mission. That's where you'll see him. And that's where you'll believe him. And as we believe him to the extent that we believe him, we will not be troubled about the trouble it takes to tell others. Now we're going we're gonna to approach this table. I'm going to break just the traditions and patterns. Oh, okay, we had the sermon. We're going to close that now. We're going to have an official prayer. Then we're going to move on. And No, we're going to come back to this table. And this table is a place in worship that we encounter Jesus. And I want you to do that this morning. Not unlike what I was, what I was describing to the kids. I want you as you approach this table and as those who are going to be serving come forward because like the gospel, Jesus was introduced to you by somebody, this tray will be passed to you by another. But as it comes, if you have believed in Jesus, I want you then to take that bread and remember again, this was for me, that I have received personally Jesus whose body was given for me. When that cup comes, and you take that cup, I want you to encounter Jesus there as the one who was crushed, whose life was poured out, whose blood was shed for your guilt, for your forgiveness, because he loved you and gave himself for you. If that's what you believe, that in Jesus' death in our place we have forgiveness, then I want you to join us at this table and let it be an encounter again of Jesus himself who loved us and died for us. We're going to have the, uh, the worship team just leading instrumentally for the serving of the bread that we'll, we'll sing together in the cup. But take this time to remember. Take this time to reflect.
I'm struck that there's a certain amount of solemnity here at this table. We're quiet and solemn about it. And yet it's not merely solemn and traditional, it's personal. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. On that same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. It was unleavened bread, maybe something just like this. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you personally. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Father, thank you. Thank you that you loved us and gave your son. Thank you that you gave us a way that for 2,000 years your church has remembered him. We've joined together as one body, the living body of the living Savior. Oh, thank you that it's not only your church as a whole, but each one who is redeemed by forgiveness that is found in Jesus. Each of us, Lord, today, thank you.